You're listening to a podcast from 702. 702. The Naked Scientist. Chris, I always look forward to chatting to you when I'm standing in for Azania Musaka. Uh, how are you this afternoon? I'm in fine form, although, you know, it's pretty chilly now. We always seem to start these programs talking about the weather, but it, it's poignant now today. Yeah, it's, it's really cold here. Suddenly the weather is doing what it ought to be doing at this time of year rather than the climate change new norm that we've kind of got used to. I, I, so, yes, it's cold, cold. Obviously, you're having the opposite situation. Uh, well, it's a little bit cloudy here, well, at least in Joburg, but I hope you've got the fireplace on and you're enjoying some marshmallows and whatever it is. No? Well, I will be later when I'm, when I'm finished talking to you. <laughs> Great stuff, Chris. Thank you so much for joining us. And we're going to straight, go straight to the lines and we start with Joe in Kilani. Joe, what's your question to the Naked Scientist? Uh, Welcome. Uh, hello, Dr. Smith. I want to ask you about the uh, utility of these low-cost uh, homemade use antigen testing in the diagnosis and control of the disease as some epidemiologists have suggested. Hi Joe, Joe's referring to the point of care tests as they're called, then also known as lateral flow assays to test yourself for coronavirus infection. Mm -hmm. They're about the size of a microscope slide which is roughly the length of your index finger and about an inch wide. And they work by you swabbing your nose and throat, you put the swab into some detergent solution, rinse it off, and then you put some drops of the detergent solution into a window Mm. on the test strip. And then within half an hour, it can actually give you the diagnosis. And what it's doing is using antibodies to detect the presence of the outer coat, the so-called antigens of the coronavirus, which are only there if you are actually actively infected. Mm. So in some places, they're using this for mass screening. And uh, Liverpool, the city of Liverpool in the UK, where the Beatles came from, mm-hmm. is one such place. And the idea is that you give this to everybody. People can screen themselves and they can work out who the positive cases are because two thirds of people who have the new coronavirus infection don't have any symptoms at all. Mm. And this means tracking it down and, and reining it in, stopping it spreading is really difficult because mm. you don't know who's got it and who hasn't got it more mm. than half the time. Now, when they've tested the performance of these tests, they are not brilliant. And in specialised hands, they pick up about 78% of the positives. So if you've got someone who's really got coronavirus, it will find them and call them positive 78% of the time in experienced hands. Hmm. In the average member of the public's hands, because they might not swab quite so accurately, it's about 58% sensitive. In other words, 58% of the time it will call a positive a positive when it really is positive. Mm -hmm. So used as a tool to find people who've actually got coronavirus infection right now, it's all right, it's better than nothing, but it's not brilliant. But the flip side of this coin is, what's the specificity of the test? If it says you're negative, how good is it at actually finding the real negatives? And that's a different story. It's 99.98% specific. And that means that 98.98% of the time, if it says you're negative, you really are negative. Mm. And that's really useful if you want to screen people to, say, keep an infection out of a particular environment. If your staff member's going into care for vulnerable people in a hospital, Mm. say you're going to a care home, say you're going to visit an elderly relative who's been shielding themselves away and you don't want to infect them with something, if you get a negative test... It says you haven't got coronavirus. Actually, you're not going to put them under any kind of risk. So it really matters what the question is you're asking. If you're asking, 
is this any good at finding people who've got coronavirus infection right now? It's all right, but not brilliant. If you're asking, have I not got coronavirus? Am I safe to go and see somebody uh, so I don't infect them? Yeah. And it gives you a negative. They're really rather good. So therefore, it really depends on what it is that you want to use it for and therefore how useful the information is to you. Joe, are you happy with that? Yes, thank you very much. Thank you so much for calling in and have a good afternoon further. And we go to Martha in Randbeck next. Uh, Martha, welcome to the show. Chris is listening. Hi, Dr. Smith. Am I on? You are indeed. Uh, Dr. Smith, I'm 78 years old, live in a well-controlled retirement village. My question is, with hundreds or maybe thousands of people walking around asymptomatic, with the COVID virus, uh, would it be of any benefit to me to go out or continue with my self-isolation? How more infectious are the people that are asymptomatic than the people who are positive and that are walk, walking, maybe walking around? Martha, we have a general rule of thumb in virology which is that the more symptoms a person has, the more infectious a person probably is. But obviously you're asking a slightly different question, which is the people who two-thirds of the time have no symptoms whatsoever with this new coronavirus, how infectious are they? And the answer is at the moment we don't know for sure because no one's actually been able to do the study where we've taken samples from people at random, found the ones who are testing positive but with no symptoms, and then tested to see how easy it is to transmit the virus from one to another from those people. But what probably is true is if a person is infected, they're almost certainly capable of passing on the infection to others. But they're probably less good at doing so than people who are very symptomatic. And it's obvious if you've got symptoms and you're coughing and blowing your nose a lot, then you're making far more virus aerosol. You're spraying virus into the environment a lot more than someone who has very few symptoms. We also know from studying the pattern of spread of the virus, people have done very big studies, including one recent study from India where they looked at uh, almost a million people and they found dramatically that 80% of the cases in the study were caused by just 10% of people. So in other words, a very small number of people give the infection to a very large number of people. So it may well be that the small number of people who are symptomatic and have the infection are more likely to account for most of the infections. So if you steer clear of the symptomatic ones, you'll be better off. But you ask really, should you stay shielding or should you go out? The answer is the transmission risk from this when you're out and about is far lower than when you're indoors. If you're indoors sharing air with people who might be infected, you're much more likely to get infected yourself than if you're out in the fresh air. And so if you can get out, get some fresh air, get some sunshine, that's going to do you the world of good health-wise. And if you can do that and stay away from at least two metres away from other people, then you're minimising your risk and maximising your gain through getting that fresh air. So I, I would certainly encourage you to get out and about if you can. Try and do so by keeping physical distance from other people and definitely ask people not to come and see you or visit you uh, and to spend time with you if they have any symptoms whatsoever. And then you have at least reduced the risk to the minimum that you can. Comprehensive answer. Thank you so much, Chris. And we're going to go to uh, a voice note next, and it's about switching on car indicators. Hi, Tseko and uh, Dr. Chris. How's it? To ben, good afternoon um, from Kempton Park. I just want to find out um, 
what happens uh, when you switch on a number of uh, cars indicators at the same time all of a sudden after a few minutes or a few seconds the sequence or the frequency with which they flicker start differing at first they will start together but as time goes on then that sequence will differ please explain yep. to me that thank you Thanks for your question, Ben. I know what you mean, which is we start the indicators all together, they all start in sync, yeah. but pretty soon they diverge. Mm -hmm. Now, the reason for this is that some cars are different. So, obviously, if you're comparing all the same cars, that's one thing. But if you've got a mixture of different cars, they all use slightly different circuitry. Right. And the way that those things work, it's, a, it's a, a system that basically allows a current to flow for a period of time. It warms up. Uh, as the current flows and then it breaks the circuit transiently and then it re-establishes and breaks it and re-establishes different circuitry is going to do that at slightly different rates mm. the wires that are supplying the box that does that might have slightly different resistances mm. the voltage that's running in the car is going to be slightly higher in some cars than others because of the way the voltage regulator works all these things are going to affect the current that's going to flow through the system that opens and closes the contacts to make the indicator lights flash on and off. And therefore, even though they, you may take all the same make of car, they may have different units in them which work slightly differently or have slightly different parameters. And then the other factors I've explained also make a difference. And that will together mean that the amount of time it takes the lights to turn on and turn off is slightly different one car to the next. And if you think about it, you're starting from a position where all of them are synchronized and you're going to a position where many of them are not in sync anymore. There are far more ways for them to not be in sync than there are for them to be in sync. So the probability is they're much more likely to flash out of sequence than to flash in sequence. Tonin Santon, what's your question for the Naked Scientist? Welcome to the show. Uh, uh, thank you. Hi there. Yeah, it's really nothing too serious. Why do some people particularly American women, why are they so nasal when they talk? <laughs> Simple and straightforward. Hi, Tony. Well, you, I mean, you could say, well, what, why do South Africans talk the way they do? Why mm. do English people? I mean, I don't think I've got an accent. <laughs> you ask someone else. I have. And yeah. it's funny because I went to an American friend of mine who, I, you know, we went to university together, but in different countries. We, mm. we got in touch and made friends while we were at university. Mm. And we've stayed in touch ever since. We went to each other's weddings, etc. And I was in the States a few years back for something. And I jumped on the train and I went to see her and her family. And she's got three children now. And her little boy, uh, well, we were chatting away at the dinner table. And her little boy just looked up, stared straight at me. And he goes, you talk funny. <laughs> and I said, no, I don't. You're the one who talks funny. But he didn't didn't get the joke. But it's it's the, the thing is, it's all about learned behavior. We, we talk in the way that we do because we learn to speak from who? From the people around us. Therefore, we adopt the accent, the way of forming speech patterns, the cadence, the way in which we exaggerate certain sounds, the way in which we form our lips and our mouths to make certain sounds. We do it by imitation. Mm. And because we do it by imitation, we learn from those around us who all speak a certain way, who've all imitated each other. And because of originally the constraints of geography, if you were, say, in, in, in England and isolated in England, you learn to speak like those around you. And there are lots of regional accents in the UK, but, but you learn to speak that way. If you departed England and you went off and lived in Australia or South Africa yeah. and you grew up there, you would 
very quickly learned to speak like the locals, but there wasn't much traffic back and forth between the places because it involved, in, in the old days, a big yeah. boat journey. It yeah. was much harder to travel back and forth. So therefore, those sorts of accents, those sorts of speech characteristics got concentrated in a certain way and tended to become focused on those geographies. So people, not surprisingly, growing up there, began to speak in those particular ways and actually my favorite accent in the whole world i mean there are two of them actually um I, i'm not i'm not blowing smoke up your bum but i do love <laughs> i do love the, the south african accent it's one of my favorites the other accent i absolutely adore is i mean i used to work in london at, at a hospital where they had a very big caribbean population there mm. and the ladies who used to work on the telephones oh they were, they had these wonderful jamaican accents yeah. and you just everything they said i could they could read me the shipping <laughs> forecast as boring something i i just listened because i loved listening to them i thought it was so fabulous it makes you cheerful just to hear it it's just the most <laughs> musical melodic way of speaking i i just love it but, Actually, uh, anyway those are my two favorite accents yeah it reminds me of uh um, a comedy show done by Trevor Noah why he's talking about the Russian accent and, uh, and, and what it does so maybe one day some research should be done about what accents do to us the Jamaican accents definitely does tend to put uh, one in a good mood and we go to oh, Andrew definitely. in, uh, in, in Hamanskral uh, what's your question for, uh, for Dr. Chris Andrew? Uh, hello Dr. Chris hi there's a a spot on the planet Jupiter, they call it a red spot, which is big enough to swallow the whole Earth. I just want to know how far bigger is Jupiter than Earth? Oh, Jupiter is huge. I mean, you could fit the Earth inside Jupiter about a thousand times over. Sure. It's absolutely enormous. And yes, that red spot could easily swallow the planet. Mm. And it's been there for hundreds of years. Uh, early astronomers documented it. It is a massive storm system. Jupiter is a gas giant, which means most of Jupiter is made of gases like hydrogen. There's probably a small rocky nucleus at the center of Jupiter, mm. but most of it is gas chiefly hydrogen. And, and it's packed down, but it has a big wispy atmosphere. And this uh, atmosphere moves in the same way that the Earth's atmosphere does. Therefore, it can have storm systems and feel forces in the same way as storm systems create forces and, and adopt sort of circular patterns on the Earth because of the spin of the planet. We think the same thing is happening on Jupiter and has created that big red spot there. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much, Chris, for that one. And before we, we, we let you go, there's one uh, question that came via WhatsApp, and uh, it's, it's unsigned, unfortunately, but uh, there's a question nevertheless. Does wearing a mask cause any harm to one's health? Breathing becomes heavier with masks on. I'm sure you've been asked this a million times, but I would still love for you to, uh, to give us an answer to this. As far as we know, then there shouldn't be any health consequences. Obviously, if you're using a nice, clean mask, you're not reusing a mask that's dirty, you, and you take it on and off carefully so that anything sticking to it that's ended up on the outside and all kinds of germs and things can stick to the outside are not then showered into the air and you breathe them in, yes. then there, there shouldn't be any consequence because they're designed in order not to cause a huge impediment to air going in. The way in which most face coverings actually work to cut down the transmission of coronavirus, I mean, it's not 100%, but it mm. cuts it down a bit, is that they're in the way of most of the particles of, and droplets that you're spraying out from your nose and mouth. And so if you have that mask material in the way, when you're breathing out, you'll blow the droplets into the mask. When you're breathing in, the air goes around the side and doesn't cause an impediment. So it's not going to cause you to become breathless or short of oxygen. Mm. It will 
uh, arrest droplets coming out, but the air really is not going to struggle to, to leave your body. And people have done studies and they've not shown any reduction in oxygen levels or a buildup of carbon dioxide by doing this. Most people find it just a bit uncomfortable and it can cause chapped lips. I've, I've had very, very sore lips through doing this. So I think lips, lip seal and Vaseline sales and petroleum jelly sales are doing one wonderfully well um, in the shops at the moment. Lebu in Sochangove, one final one. We still have about a minute to go, uh, doctor. Uh, and then she, he or she says good day. So I'd like to know from the good doctor why there is no hailstorm at night because I've seen a few hailstorms in Pretoria uh, during the day but never at night. Is this a fact, doctor? Yeah, I've been caught in some pretty major storms in, in Joburg and, and hailstorms included among them. Storms can come at any time of the day or night. Um, it, it's probably a myth that they're only going to happen at, um, at, during the daytime. It's more likely that what's going on is that you're awake to see it. So when you're asleep, you don't notice it at night. And so you assume, therefore, that it hasn't happened. But in fact, most storms happen most of the time on and off. So no, I, I don't think there's any evidence that hailstorms are confined purely to daylight hours. And on that stormy uh, note, we're going to leave it. Dr. Chris, thank you so much for joining us. It's and a pleasure. You're welcome, and uh, as usual, for being a uh, for being a good sport and give us uh, g- giving us all the answers.